We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. But then a couple things happened. Number one, Japan then came and built factories in Tennessee and it's line and it measures very carefully the productivity of its line workers. And the Tennessee people achieved 98% of the productivity of the Japanese workers. And so, yeah, the Japanese workers were two, you know, two ish percent more productive, but like, yeah, that's nothing. That's fine. And, and that's <laughs> fine. In most manufacturing industries, American was actually more, the line workers were more productive than in Japan by a little, again, by a small amount. We get this inferiority complex, like our workers just suck, but no, it's institutions and it's the ecosystem. It's the suppliers, it's the markets, it's the, you know, blah, blah, blah. One thing that I think he does that is, is extremely important, he iterates rapidly, right? And it's, it's sort of like, uh, like SpaceX is known for taking like a capital rich approach to development where they, you know, for, on, on Starship, they have like a bunch of prototypes that blew up kind of on purpose. Like they knew they would probably blew up. It's, it's a highly iterative approach where like you allow yourself to fail if necessary, and then you make the tweaks and adjustments to uh, on, on engineering. You can't figure out what went wrong. There is no safety regulation, right? Or, or like very little, and like you are allowed to like put out like a half baked product and try it, and you know field it and see if it fails. A large parts of the economy, you can't do that. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Eli, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to uh, be on with you guys. E Eli, I thought we'd start with, is the great stagnation over? Maybe you can give a, a brief description for, for people who, uh, who, who are unfamiliar with that, that concept and then get into where are we? Yeah, so... Uh... The great stagnation is a slowdown in the rate of total factor productivity growth that began in around 1973. So before, so for the like 50 years prior uh, to that, we had grown at about 2% per year uh, in, in TFD growth. And uh, in the sort of early to mid 70s, uh, it shifted to another regime of like half a percent a year. And we had a brief like decade of, of fast growth again in 1995 to 2005. And uh, since 2005, it's been pretty abysmal growth. Uh, it's 0.3% TFP growth per year, uh, basically ever since then. And like, no, it's not over. It's like still happening, uh, you know, not, not least uh, because like the data still shows it's still happening. Like, we're growing uh, slowly uh, in, in terms of TFP, as far as we can tell. But then I think like, the other thing about it is that I think people mistakenly think it's like a technology thing, like in the sense of like new inventions or whatever. But I think it's actually like a governance thing. Uh, like we like we're we're making it actually like unduly challenging to um, to deploy new technologies that we invent or, or to to scale or to iterate or to um, you know take take the the new ideas and make them. Um, make them like scale up to the point where they can actually like start to have a, an economic impact because like an idea, like at the time that you invent it makes zero economic impact. It like only can make an impact if like everybody starts using it. So 
Um, and I think it's like, that's where the process is really being held up. It's not like, you know, we don't have any science porn. We have plenty of science porn on the internet. Uh, lots of cool things happening, but like the great stagnation, like still going on. That's my take. No, Noah, where do you stand? How do you react to that? I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we um, I think, you know, back in like maybe the 1980s or something, there was this idea that, that, you know, TFP was actually just how much stuff gets invented this week. But I think we've moved well beyond that. And we realized that diffusion of innovation and its impact on the overall economic ecosystem is what really uh, translates, you know, technology into growth, abundance and all this stuff. And I think that 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 idea has sunk into economics a while ago. Um, TFP data is really bad and I'm really annoyed by it. And there's a number of bad things about it. Number one, there's the inherent difficulty of calculating it because, so, you know, for those who don't know, to calculate total factor productivity, you need to calculate, um, that you need, basically you take, um, output like GDP, you know, however much stuff we're producing, and then you kind of net out the, uh, the contributions from labor and capital. Right. You're like, OK, well, how much of this was just we got more people. That's actually pretty easy to net out, honestly. Uh, so so that's why labor productivity is a pretty clear statistic. But but then netting out the, the contribution from capital is actually really hard because um, there's a million problems with it. Like, what if you use the machines for more hours a day? <laughs> you know, like um, how do machines combine with humans in the production function and things like that? And also the. The, the data sources that we have are, are not even very great. So the thing about TFP data is like, it's not bad for looking back on a whole, you know, like decade or two decades, but for looking at how well things did this year, it's useless. Um, even if you look at John Fernald, sorry, Fernald, there's this guy at the San Francisco Fed who tries very, very, very hard to, to use, all, you know, a whole bunch of fancy tricks to like make TFP a thing you can use year to year. And it's just an insurmountable task, I think. So, so basically... TFP is not that great. Instead, I look at labor productivity as a, as a good short-term indicator. Uh, you know, labor productivity can get uh, distorted. For example, if you have a big recession, you fire a bunch of the, the lowest paid workers, it looks like your labor productivity spikes, but it didn't really. It's just that you couldn't afford to keep the, the less productive workers on. And so, um, so there, you know, it's, it's messy for a lot of reasons, but looking at labor productivity growth in a boom is actually pretty good because if your labor productivity is growing, even though everyone has a job, it's not from composition effects, right? It's not from, it's not from hiring a whole bunch more, um, you know, checkout clerks, uh, you know, no, uh, no, no, not trying to throw any shade on checkout clerks here. I was one at one point, but the point is that labor productivity is actually decent and, and labor productivity really, really jumped, uh, right in the wake of the, the pandemic, then kind of slumped and is now actually, you know, doing all right again. So we're, we're seeing rapid labor productivity growth the last couple quarters. Um, and so that's good. Uh, you know, I don't know that that makes a, a roaring twenties decade or, or, you know, I don't know how closely to connect this to technology, but what we can connect it to is investment in factories. We see massively increasing investment in factories, especially in two areas. Um, in semiconductors and in um, in uh, um, green technology, you know, solar and batteries and especially uh, batteries, especially. And you say, OK, well, is that we know those are our, that's where we're doing industrial policy, right? That's where we're doing the IRA, the Chips Act, stuff like that. Uh, is that it? You know, is it just government says, OK, guys, we'll pay you to make these factories. So everyone's like, OK, I'll make the factory. Well, um, you know, yeah, to some extent. But then when you when you look into the actual um 
when you look into the actual specifics of the technological developments in those areas, you also see that there's been massive technological developments in those areas. You see that batteries have become insanely cheaper and their energy density has become insanely higher. Uh, you know, so, so the quality of these things and the cost are, you know, on both these metrics, they're really just improving. Uh, that's even before bringing new kinds of batteries into the equation. Um, you know, scaling of innovations really happening. Obviously, solar, we saw the massive cost decline. That's not even a story anymore. And, um, and you know, there some other things too, like uh, electrolyzers for green hydrogen are on this exponentially, uh, you know, improving path. And, um, and so we see these, these real technological, um, you know, things that are happening. It's not, um, the, 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 the boom in construction of green technology is not, you know, being driven just by the government saying, we'll pay you to make a bunch of this stuff, uh, because the stuff actually got better. Uh, and so, so I think that there is a case that we're looking at a technology driven, uh, productivity boom right now, not necessarily of the size that we were looking at in say the 1950s, but you know, um, not nothing either. That's my thought. I, I mean, the thing I would push back on Noah is like, yes, we've had this huge cost decline in solar panels and batteries and it's awesome. Um, but it's like, those are things that like the U S invented and then China scaled up. Right. So like, if the question is like, is the U.S. like capable of like scaling inventions of the same kind anymore? Like, like I think there's still like unproven. You're right to like note like there's a ton of manufacturing investment. Like, it it is the output. The output isn't like totally there. Like, obviously, like Tesla's doing like Gigafactory battery yeah. stuff. Oh, but, what about uh, Tesla? So Tesla starting. They they've been the the trendsetter. So it's starting, but like in 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 terms of. Like, what is the driver behind it? It's like, it's like, it's like Chinese society, like willing to like foot the, you know, sort of the, the inconveniences and like the, you know, uh, being willing to like, not ha bear like the NIMBY costs or whatever of, uh, 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 of actually like doing the scaling. Right. And like, and like, if, if you, well, like, so, I, I don't know. But... so, so like, I want something that like, that like we scale. I want something that like like is like definitively it's like we like the like the US scales up. Well, two things. Number one, um I, I think that you are really underrating Tesla's impact in the battery uh you know uh industry because for, for many years, you know, now you know Chinese battery producers have caught up to the frontier, I'd say, or pretty close, uh and are even you know pioneering to new stuff like sodium ion batteries, and that's great, you know, go China. But um uh you know, but but for many for decades, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, that was like that was driving batteries. That was the frontier. And we had the gigafactories here in America. We did actually scale those up and that did push down cost. You know, the the um the main technological innovation, the sort of incremental innovation that we got from scaling was better data to calibrate the software that tells where the little pokey spikes are that poke through your separator in your battery so you don't have your battery explode so you can you know, like uh, pack more energy into a battery, right? And we got that, that was pretty cool. We got that from Tesla, like Tesla pioneered that and then that takes scaling up. And then, you know, of course, all the factory scaling and all those kind of things too, Tesla's really good. The other thing is space launch. If you look at space launch, you know, if you look at, if you, if you net SpaceX out of the equation, it's like China, America. But then if you add, yeah. if you add SpaceX, it's like America. And it's like, and it's like, we just kicked the crap out of China with just this one company. So I'd say that 
it's it's the problem is that only Elon Musk has figured out how to scale yes. up manufacturing exactly. in America. We've got this one guy who's done it twice and everyone else who's done it zero times. And that's a that's a big problem. But we can also learn from Elon Musk. You know, if he's not busy shit posting on Twitter, maybe we could get him to go to some other companies and say, hey, how did you do this? And then and then get some, you know, um, actionable ideas. And so I talked to a lot of kind of hard tech entrepreneurs, deep tech entrepreneurs who say, that's what we need to do. We need to basically reproduce the Elon Musk secret sauce, which is of course what we did with Elon Musk progenitor, Henry Ford. Everybody else copied Ford's factory innovations and scaling innovations. And then, you know, we got the great auto industry and the great manufacturing industries of the early 20th century. And so I think, so space, reusable rockets, which are, have absolutely yes. changed the game in space. And um, and and batteries for cars are two industries where we have successfully uh, scaled, and there have been physical things where you'd think NIMBYs might kill it. Yeah. So I mean, I, I uh, obviously I agree with a lot of that. Like the SpaceX is just such an am amazing story, and and uh, just absolutely incredible what they have done and are still doing. Uh, you know, with with the Starlink constellation, with like building Starship, it's it's like super exciting to watch. I think like in terms of like copying Elon, right? I think like the best hope is for like ex SpaceX employees, right? Or or ex Tesla employees, like who who like kind of right. learn the like Elon's like way of doing things, uh, and then go out and like start new companies and or and, work for, sort of, for like, other companies. Work work for companies who are scaling up. Yeah, be a CTO somewhere. Maybe. Bill Bill Nudson. Bill maybe. Nudson is it's, the example, it's, right? It's super. It, like Bill Nudson learned. Bill Nudson. He's the the guy in Freedom's Forge, he's the protagonist of Freedom's Forge. He's the guy who um, learned, he, he built out a new division. At, he built out the Chevrolet division at GM and scaled okay. up. He, he had learned uh, from Ford, from working at Ford, then left and basically was, you know, um, and took this to GM and scaled up actually past Ford for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and so that's a good example. But, but GM wasn't a new company. Well, it wasn't a... It, he didn't found it, but he founded a division at it. So he was like, they didn't really yeah. have CTOs then, but he would have been CTO. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, so that can happen, but I just, I think it's like the, the sort of like the legacy incumbents are like pretty ossified these days. And I think you do get a benefit from like doing something new and, and sort of just, you know, I agree. not I having agree. all the technical debt of like, of like corporate institutions. Right. And so, so that, so if I, if I was going to like, place my bet on like how a like u.s man manufacturing renaissance happens it's like it's like a lot of new companies uh not you know not like boeing suddenly getting uh more innovative that may be true i do think that there's you know boeing has actually shown a desire to sort of do little entrepreneurship or or have a division do its own thing um this has been a big problem the 737 you know was made at, at a different um uh, location and it was supposed to be all independent and stuff like that. And they, they failed, they sucked, but you know, they, they at least showed a willingness to do that. So, so maybe Boeing will do that, you know, but, uh, but I agree. Like, I think startups are really important. Um, it's as a side note, it is very good to see industrial policy being split between supporting incumbents and supporting startups. Hmm. And so, so that's one thing that the people who designed the IRA and the chips act were really on top of like, you see, you know, it's not, I, I was worried that the CHIPS Act was going to be just chunking a bunch of money at Intel, but it turns out there's actually huge support for, for startups. And, um, 
and uh, IRA as well. Uh, so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by that. And, and you're absolutely right. And so, of course, NIMBYs are a giant problem, right? We all know NIMBYs are a problem. We can sit here and rail about NIMBYs. And I think they are a giant problem. But I think that SpaceX's story shows that when you can overcome the NIMBY problem, America isn't uniquely dysfunctional in some other way. And I think that um, that when you have <coughs> a country that starts losing some manufacturing industries, you tend people tend to get this sort of um, inferiority complex about you know. So, for example, um, in the in the nineteen eighties, everyone said, "Oh, um, you know, Japan is out competing us in autos because Japanese line workers are, are more productive because you know they like." Um, but then a couple things happened. Number one, Japan then came and built factories in Tennessee and it's line and it measures very carefully the productivity of its line workers and the Tennessee people achieved 98% of the productivity of the Japanese workers. And so, yeah, the Japanese workers were two, you know, two ish percent more productive, but like, yeah, that's nothing. That's fine. And, and, and that's <laughs> fine. And so, and then, and then also very careful measures were done in other industries and found that in most manufacturing industries, American was actually more, the line workers were more productive than in Japan by a little, again, by a small amount, but so not, not that big a difference. But the point is that we get this inferiority complex, like our workers just suck, blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, it's institutions and it's the ecosystem. It's the suppliers, it's the markets, it's the, you know, blah, blah. blah. And so I, I really think that we underrate our own ability to do manufacturing stuff. We are able to do it. We simply have to overcome the, the problems. Um, do it in Texas because, you know, people, we're a bunch of effete coastal geeks, right? Sitting out here. Uh, yeah, where do you live again? Uh, I'm in the D.C. area. So totally, okay, totally DC, guilty You're living in D.C. Yeah. Yeah. We're living in San yeah. Francisco. We're surrounded yeah. by a bunch of people who don't want to build anything, right? Because yeah. they all make their money you know, just like in, in, in things that don't require you to build anything. But then, but in Texas, people are like, let's build it. You know, like Texas is a thing. That is a part of America, right? And then, um, and I think that there's, there's, you know, other places too, like Alabama is building stuff. Tennessee is building stuff. It, right now, uh, there's a whole bunch of America that's just dedicated to mining and farming, but that would build stuff if we built it there, right? And so we've got to get, um, you know, there, there are political issues. Like, I'm, like Colorado would be a great place to build stuff if Colorado NIMBYs allowed it. And the fact that we sort of, you know, California sent like an elite squad of, of, of granola munching hippies to take over Colorado and they did. And then, you know, and then decided let's do the same thing we did in California and never build anything. And then, but then, um, so, so that's a problem, right? And the, this, this blue state coastal culture of just assuming that your wealth will be handed to you from a, an existing clustering effect or like finance or government or, or just this existing software cluster in San Francisco, that's a big problem. We've got to overcome that, but let's not sit around and just yell at that all day as our, as our life, right? Cause Texas exists. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Yeah. I would say like the other thing that comes to mind, uh, talking about SpaceX specifically is like, or, or Elon's style of engineering in general is like one thing that I think, he does that is is extremely important. He iterates rapidly, right? And it's, it's sort of like uh, like SpaceX is known for taking like a capital rich uh, approach to development, where they you know for, on on Starship they have like a bunch of prototypes that blew up on like kind of on purpose, like they knew they would probably blew up. Uh, you know they're they're obviously trying to make it successful, but uh, but they're kind of like okay with like failure, and 
Uh, and same with like land, trying to land the Falcon Nine. They had like multiple failures of like landings before they got a success. And so, so it's it's a highly iterative approach where like you allow yourself to fail if necessary, and then you make the tweaks and adjustments to uh, on, on engineering. You kind of figure out what went wrong, and you do it that way. And then if you compare like the way that other like legacy rocket companies have have done things, is that they basically they design end to end like to where it's like perfect and like human rated and it costs like many billions of dollars more, but then like it flies the like sort of the first time, like this is what happened with the SLS, for example. Uh, and it's like human rated, it's going to fly humans, which, you know, SpaceX is still not even doing on Starship, but like it costs many billions of dollars more and it's like $4 billion per launch, like, like going forward. So it's like, it's a much worse approach. And there's a lot of parts of the economy where like, I think space is unique in the sense that like there is no safety regulation, right? Or, or like very little. And like you are allowed to like put out like a half-baked product and try it and 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 you know, field it and see if it fails. And in a, like large parts of the economy you can't do that. Um I think like cars is like relatively good because uh there's there's a lot of safety regulation, but it is sort of enforced via like a, a surveillance mechanism so uh so if if your something turns out to be wrong with your car like they do mandatory recalls and they, the manufacturer has to fix it and that's that's good that's fine aircraft too as you know right no airplane is actually very different uh airplanes are everything is like pre complete pre-market approval right so like so you have to so it's much more similar to like the the way the legacy aerospace companies design rockets in that, like, you design it end to end to be like perfect, or you know, it's never going to actually be perfect, but as close as you can to perfect, and then you get FAA to sign off on it, and then, uh, and then you can uh, can build it. Um, and so, like, you don't get to go through that process of iteration uh, in in a, uh, in an area like like aircraft, and and so I worry about that as another like modality aside from NIMBYism. Um, it, it's it's like this like unwillingness to uh tolerate like any sort of like risks of iteration in in society maybe so but you know um what i've what i've noticed is that america has a bunch of small aircraft manufacturing companies headquartered in some little town in iowa you've never heard of sure and like it's hard to scale up to making like wide body aircraft like the the number of companies in the world who know how to do that is possibly three but really just it's three it's it's it's, it's it, possible. Well, two, two and three. It, but, um, yeah, America yeah. can maybe do it. And so so that's really, really, really hard. And of course, um but okay, so one cool thing about Embraer is that it showed like Japan tried and failed to make a you know aircraft company for for many years, and Korea never even tried. They're like, no, screw that, we're not doing that. Europe had to massively subsidize it. America created a total of one, and then Brazil <laughs> just this awesome, awesome aircraft company out in the middle of nowhere. So, so that is that's something that America could do better. We could have a company besides Boeing making that. But then Boeing and and you know, if you're in 2010 or 2005 or something, there is absolutely no reason not to just buy from Boeing and Airbus. They are amazing. They you know they're they're just everything works, everything's fine. Like you know, and they can deliver these incredibly high volumes at low cost. And um, and we're just like okay, I'll you know I'll buy you know your 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 whatever they were they're selling. What's the top selling Airbus one? Remind me, three twenty a three twenty. Yeah, we'll just buy your a three twenty. Why the hell not? Buy another one. Yeah, 
click. And then like now with, with, you know, with Boeing starting to show some problems, there's, there's potential for us to have another one that comes in, but only one, like we can only have one other big Boeing type company. We're it's not so going to seven yeah. Boeings, right? We don't, yeah, because no, like, no, no, it's, right. it's not an, an airplane is a bus. It's not a car. The reason we have multiple car companies is because people love different styles of and models and of cars. That's what, that's what, um, you know, in fact, Bill Newton discovered. He was like, Ford is like, you, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. And he's like, different colors for everybody, different models per year, planned obsolescence, you know, which is, you know, maybe wasteful resources, but who cares? Um, and so, and so then like, that was a big deal. And aircraft, you can't really do that because people are like, Ooh, new, new shape of the cockpit. Who cares? Like, um, you know, no one, well, it's, lot of, lot it's of a your, bus, it's a of, utility thing. Your product is like basically determined by physics, right? Like you're, you're, you're like shaping it in a way no. to like make it as efficient as possible. As yeah. As, like like, like no, whatever speed you're going for. Yeah, sure. And no one cares. Like it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not determined by consumer preferences. It is a utility. It is a piece of infrastructure. It is, you know, it is a bus. Like no one cares about how, how awesome you're, I mean, like we like buses to look awesome, but we don't need a new cool, like personalized, individualized, awesome bus that therefore, since it's not driven by consumer preferences, you're not going to get the preference for variety that drives this massive proliferation of car companies. I mean, I think that there, I think there's not going to be like a ton of airline makers ever, but I think that there, there are more dimensions for progress. So like one is obviously speed, right? Like I spent part of my career at Boom uh, working on um, uh, supersonic airliners. I think the other uh, dimension, and, and we are like massively stagnating in speed. Like we know how to do uh, a Mach 2 airplane, like Concorde went Mach 2 and we don't have it anymore. So it's like, uh, you know, another poster child for uh, the great stagnation continuing. Um, the, the other dimension would be something like, you know, uh, it could you could imagine a an airplane that is, you know, smaller, uh, that is, you know, operate, you can have an airline that operates like smaller airplanes without like as many crew and without as many, maybe even unpiloted, right? Like a, a, an unmanned thing. And then you can go from smaller airports. Uh, you know, there's, there's 5,000 or something like that, like public use airports in the U S and we basically use 30 of them. Um, and, and, you know, being able to fly from like small airport to small airport, like, you know, like an Uber or something like that, like that would be another dimension where we, you know, we could, you could conceive of like pretty significant progress uh, in aviation. And then, and then, and then, you know, you're, if you're dealing with much smaller, the, the crazy thing about uh, airplane programs is that their complexity uh, is like, or like the cost of the programs is exponential with uh, maximum takeoff weight. So like the bigger the airplane, like the much, like much, much more expensive is the program. So I think like, I'm a believer really in, uh, you know, smaller planes, not, not big airlines. Um, and, and we've seen already, like, like you said, like, like the 737 and the A320 are the dominant airliners, right? It's not like the, the wide bodies and stuff like, like actually, like we use them like for transatlantic and transpacific stuff, but like for the most part, like smaller is, is the smaller planes are, are like winning in terms of like the market share, uh, smaller airliners. And we could go even smaller, especially as we get more autonomy and, and, and that sort yeah. of, but, but I still want to plane with an upper deck, like a 747 true. that looks so good. It like, was so cool. Yeah. It was I want that yeah. again. I want that even if it reduces even if it increases drag a little bit, I want it. I don't know if it does yeah. or not. You can I, de I demand no, it as a consumer. No, I mean it's a it's it's it was pretty like thermodynamically efficient for its time, right? Like it, yeah. it's it's it, it works fine. Yeah, I think that the I mean the problem with with airplanes being big is as always it's like airline economics and you've got to fill all the seats. 
So you got to fly it on routes where you can where you can fill all the seats. So I looked in at one point, like, could I buy up all the used like A380s and so only flew like the double decker Airbuses that are even bigger than the 747s. And and it's like it's like pretty hard to pretty hard to make that work. It turns out, um, but but I was. Uh, it, are those all like, going to be retrofitted as, as cargo planes for the military? Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I think they're going to be bought up by like Saudis who want like an A380 like uh, private jet or something like that. I see. Thanks, Saudis. <laughs> um, okay, so but uh, it'll, it'll just they'll have it be a, a like a, a build a, like housing at Naom or whatever. Yeah, something like that. Um, okay, so but but um, do you know Ian Brook? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I am. Uh, I am. I am one of Ian's uh, uh, early investors. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. So, so the other day I was at a, a party, and um, you know, people are like, "There's, there's techno music, but no one's dancing. It's at some warehouse, you know, in San Francisco, and it's a bunch of you know AI tech people." And then I'm standing at this party, and then this guy taps me on the shoulder. He's like, "Hey, want to see a jet engine?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." And that was Ian Brooke. And then his his um his jet engine was in the in the back of that warehouse. And I don't know how. I'm sure he didn't like bring it over in an Uber. Like he just that was his that was his workshop. And then I saw the jet oh, engine. Yeah. You know, he explained some of how it worked. And then um there are there are cool things being done in the aircraft space. And I don't you know obviously that the the thing he's doing will solve mostly the 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 lesser problem of um international flights, the big international flights going really fast. Like that would be the Concorde times 10, right? Plus it'll, it'll be useful for the, for missiles. No, I think, I think it's like, I think it's exactly what the, the industry needs. So it's like, it's super efficient at like high speed and low speed. So if you have like a single cycle engine, right, it's only efficient at cruise speed. And so, so being able to make it like efficient across like everything means like you solve a ton of problems and you know, what I spent most of my time on at Boom was landing and takeoff noise. So, like, right. like how loud can the airplane be right. at, at takeoff, right? And, and if, you know, if he's just using a fan at takeoff, then, uh, then that's going to be a lot quieter. And so that solves that problem as well. So it, it's, it, like, yes, that's exactly the kind of innovation we need in aerospace. And he's, like, a super scrappy guy, and he's, like, making it happen. That's awesome. We're getting in the weeds here, Eric. Yeah, let, let me let me zo- let me zoom out a bit. Although that was a great great discussion, e- Eli. Yeah, w- what would you need to see to determine whether the great stagnation is over? What what indicators? And then secondly, um, on the uh, the statistics, uh, is it possible that AI won't show up in the productivity statistics? You, you wrote a post about that. Where do you net out on that too? Yeah. So I mean, I think. Obviously, like if we saw a big jump in TFP, like I take Noah's point that it's like not reliable uh, data in like sort of the short term. But like if we saw it, if we saw it tick up and, and sort of you know had a few years of, of TFP growth, like that would excite me. I think the other thing is like physical statistics, right? So so like if you look at like um, energy consumption per capita in the U.S., like it peaked in the 1970s, primary energy consumption per capita late like 1977 1978 that was the peak right if we can start like getting that to take upward like that would excite me right like like uh sort of i mean we're just talking about airplanes right but like like maximum transatlantic travel speeds right if that if that starts going up like that that gets me excited i think um other other Cost of transportation in general, right? Uh, like, so if we get uh, uh, like true autonomy on the roads uh, and and sort of these like fleets of autonomous vehicles, that's super exciting. Um, in terms of AI, um, 
I'm I'm in sort of like a wait and see kind of uh, approach to AI because like I, I I get the potential, but I think that there's still so many governance problems that we have in terms of being able to like deploy new things that uh, that it's not obvious that AI is going to be able to do like live up to its full potential in a in let's say a field like healthcare, right? Like like uh, where, where you have the FDA like basically you're requiring proof that something is safe before it's allowed on the market at all. Um, you don't get that rapid iteration that you need to, um, to have really fast growth. So um, you know, this is like, we're, we're in a, a world where the rate of progress in like bio biology, like fundamental biology is so rapid right now is, is insane. And like yet medical, practice does not is not changing like that fast at all um and, and so there's that disconnect and it's not clear that ai will translate it will definitely like produce continued gains in the biotech labs but you know like like getting it to the point where it's actually like affecting uh you know consumers uh that's a that's a way harder proposition and i think like like an example of of uh, sort of like past disappointment is I would say like the internet, right? Like, like I, I thought, for example, that the internet was going to uh, destroy realtors, right? Like you'd just be able to like list your house on a website and they would, there would be no fees, right? Or like, it would not be like a 6% like transaction fee when you buy and sell real estate. And it like, turns out that totally didn't happen. Like we, we, you know, like it, it, maybe like there's some like deterioration of market power, but not much. And, and so, so it's like still like very high transactions costs for real estate transactions. And, um, and that should have been solved by the technology. Right. And so, so my, my question is like, whether the same thing uh, is going to happen with AI in terms of uh, we, we won't for like social reasons, allow it to, uh, to actually like reach the productivity potential that, that it should be able to take us to. Um, I think it will like absolutely revolutionize media. Like I think there's going to be like so much, like we're already swimming in content, but like if we, uh, you know, throw AI into the fire, there's going to be uh, a million times more even, uh, you know, what, what's the marginal value of that? I don't know. Um, I already feel like I have too much content and I don't have time for it all, but, but in sort of like the industrial sectors, I think like the obstacle is, is, is much more like social and governance rather than the technology per se. So, uh, so I would love to, I would love for it to, to revolutionize everything. Um, you know, I'm not holding my breath for it though. I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more, uh, like I would say like techno optimist, but like socio pessimist. Well, let me, um, let me, so I, I did not expect to, to, to be the opt, you know, the more optimistic guy <laughs> in this argument. Um, but I am, so I'll, I'll do that. Uh, okay. okay so, so the Henry Adams curve, uh, yeah. It's um, per capita energy use, right? And it was going up, up, up. Um, uh, and then then it was like, then 70s. And it was like, and then yep. like that website, what the fuck happened in 1971? Which always yeah. annoys me because actually 1973. And it was It's that. 1973. Yeah. But it's they wouldn't that. make it about all about monetary policy, right? No, no. Because that changed in 1973 too. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was also 1973. Nothing happened <laughs> okay. in 1971. 19... <laughs> you just slightly misread the graph. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's it's 1973, and it was uh, that's when Bretton Woods ended. But that's also when um, that's also when the oil shock hit. Yeah, and which will always lead to infinite arguments about which one did which. Is but anyway, so um, it was 1973, and we rolled off the Henry Adams curve right in 1973, and then and and we never never got back to it. So energy use per capita, right? What can you use energy for? Well, you can use it for transportation. You can use it to get from place to place. And of course, this has massive, you know, um, social stuff. You can use it for um, like, like if you're going to have cars drive faster on the road. Well, you can't because they'll crash because they're made by humans. Right. And so at some point, if, if driverless cars are able to drive 15 miles an hour faster without crashing, which is probably about as good as they could do. That will be a marginal improvement, but but I don't think we're getting much improvement in that. Airplanes maybe, uh, but people don't. Yeah, so so airplanes, yeah, you could use you could use air travel, and I don't think it's going to come from from you know like with all respect to boom, I don't think it's going to come from like supersonic hops, uh, you know, like uh, between between cities. I think maybe maybe a little bit will come from that, like, but I think uh, it's it's always that's um, I think it's going to come from from like quadcopters and small, you know, uh, uh, basically helicopters of some sort. Uh, carrying you from place to place. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, because that, that's like, that, that's just unlocking a whole new dimension of like how to get you from place to place through the sky. And once you get, you know, um, um, we have computerized air traffic control for that, that can route like a whole bunch of people through the sky. We'll get, no, you know, when we get noise, we'll need noise under control and we'll need some other stuff. And then, um, you know, and of course people have to believe it's completely safe, but I think that, you know, a few people being carried by a helicopter or like, you know, uh, things being, carried quickly, like packages being carried quickly or parts being carried quickly by helicopter will be a thing. Um, energy we can use industrially in robots. And I think that that there's not a lot of regulatory barriers to that. Yeah. There's nobody who's like, I don't want that robot near me. I think that, that robots are going to be a big deal. We're already seeing people in factories use robots to carry parts from one place to another. And I would note that when you actually look at the micro uh, stuff of, of what has why manufacturing increased in productivity so steadily for so long. I think you see it's because they found better ways to carry things from one workstation to another and that they kept finding better ways to do that again and again. And that's why humans have been so good. We're now having robots carry things from workstation to workstation and, um, and, and route things within the factory. And that was, that's, that's all our factories are going to be just robots and robot tenders once we get that, because that's really what, you know, and once we get the last mile of like robots being able to uh, look at little defects and like micro batch defects kind of thing. And like, like, oh, this needs to be ground a little more. And so then like, then we'll get, we'll get much more productivity improvements and manufacturing uh, will continue to be automated. And that's good. You know, we want that. Um, there's a lot of other ways in which robots could be useful. So like the, um, the like robots that fold your laundry, clean your house. So, so the other thing is appliances. So, so home stuff. And, and I would note, by the way, that improvements in, in home production, which means chores and childcare, do not show up in productivity statistics directly. They only show up when you increase labor supply because people have more time for things to do, which takes a while and is not, you know, um, is incomplete because sometimes people take more leisure, blah, blah, blah. Economics, economics, economics. Um, <laughs> Um, there's our there's our cold open me just going yeah no, no I totally agree but, like, but okay so counted, robots right? applies like, that should, conceptually that should be counted and and and, and you know of course I don't want to just plug a company that I invested but my friend Sam D'Amico 
is is making this company impulse that yeah. does uh that that'll allow you to have much more powerful appliances so you can have a commercial dryer in your house to dry your clothes super fluffily instead of this energy saving piece of crap that we have and then like you'll uh you'll be able to have that and energy will be really cheap because of really cheap solar power during the day will charge your battery and then you can even run your dryer at night off the battery uh but you can really blast it you know with this battery and so then we'll be able to have super powered appliances in our home, robots that fold our laundry, robots that do things that muscle power has previously been doing, right? Uh, all these little tasks we run around doing like, hey, get me some tea. Robot walks over, get you, gets you tea, hands you a tea. Like, you know, hey, uh, clean up my, my, um, my, my rabbit's hay feeding area because he strewed a bunch of hay all over the ground. Okay. And then so you do that. And then, you know, the rabbit jumps on the robot, of course. And then... Um, and so, so there's lots of things you can you can do. I, I really think home appliances were a big part of the story of the the Henry Adams curve. We got things like you know uh, dryers and washers and later dryers and dishwashers, and then you know we got all these home appliances, air conditioners and whatnot, stoves and and heaters and God knows what. And so we got all these things. We're going to see a wave of appliances that increase personal energy use that are not necessarily subject to regulatory approval because it's in your house. And one thing Americans already have is giant houses. Obviously, so, so we never had productivity increases in construction. I would like to say that, yes, construction industry massively, massively, you know, hurt by NIMBYs, right? We need to, we need to get rid of that. We could talk about that all day. But... <clears throat> And construction productivity has been in decline for a long time, but it never really increased very fast at all. And in China, where they just, you know, they they don't have NIMBYs because they just throw them in re-education camps. In China, yep. construction productivity hasn't increased. In fact, it's actually gone down. And, you know, even when you're willing to build with crappy materials and you have no NIMBYs, construction productivity has been stagnant. And their shift to construction as a result, deliberate result of their economic policy is one reason why they're productivity stagnated in the 2010s because all they were doing is construction, construction, construction. So even China without the NIMBY problem has this issue. Uh, Japan tried absolutely everything to increase productivity in construction. They had robots walking up the side of buildings, building as they went. They made skyscrapers on their side. You know, they did everything. And then, and their, their construction productivity did increase. And it was just very small. Like the increases are very small. So, so even if we get rid of the NIMBYs, which we need to do, you know, even if we beat the NIMBYs and, and scale up, construction construction is not going to, you know, be a, this giant TFP driver. And yet we already have these big houses. We can put appliance in the houses. We already have big factories, you know, out in the middle of nowhere where no one cares. We can put the robots in the factories, right? We're, and and we'll, we'll do stuff with air travel too. We'll do self-driving cars. Um, and we'll get so much cheaper primary energy production from solar, right? Like you've got... Obviously, we, that is a thing we really need to, to defeat NIMBYs in order to do, but, but I think we will um, eventually. Uh, but, but, you know, already we're building like a ton of solar, like countries are just building out a ton of solar because it's cheap as hell. Yep. Wind will lose to NIMBYs, by the way. No, so, so it but, sounds but like, solar like will you agree win. with solar me. Will win. Like there's like a huge opportunity to like apply more energy. Yes. Right? Like we could have more energy and like that would be really good. Yes. And and so what my without my magical fusion like, power, you know, seen, the, but we haven't yeah. seen like the curve tick up yet. Right. Like we haven't seen like the primary energy per capita curve, like, like really move up. So, so, you know, like, I think, well, that of course would be, not. Like, so well, what like, I'm saying is like, like that 10%. would be an indicator. That would be an indicator to me that like the great stagnation is ending is like when it was, is when that we have like a, a, a reversal in that the Henry Adams curve.
Well, hopefully, I mean, we are smart. We keep track of these trends. Hopefully we can see things coming before they, they happen. Like most people are just like, oh, I guess that was a good decade, yeah. you know, but like, I, I think we can see, we yeah. can sort of see things coming. We understand the, the fundamental drivers. We can see that like solar power is a small enough piece of primary energy generation currently, although it's ramping up at an exponential rate, we can see it's still, it's yep. still so small that we couldn't expect it to lead yet to the abundance of energy that we're going to get, but we can, we can project curves. We can look at possibilities. We can say, okay, look, if solar becomes 40% of our energy use, here's how much electricity costs will go down. We can say that, you know, we can see yep. that. And so, totally. and I, yeah, that's right? our so strength. I agree with you. As, as, I yeah, agree with you. Like, like I'm a techno optimist, right? Like I'm just a socio pessimist too. Right. And I'm, and I want to like, and I want to like, I want to like see it happen. Right. Like that's, that's, that's the thing is like, I want to, I want to like, I want to make sure that it, that it happens and we don't celebrate like prematurely. All right. Fair enough. So, so, um, I agree. Eric is just, I don't know what's going on with, with Eric's. He needs to install better home internet, but, um, but yeah, so, so when I say, so I think socio pessimism is, um, uh, usually useless, often counterproductive, uh, because so, so, I, I think that ultimately the impact of technology is the, you know, is, is human mediated. It's the impact of technology is giving humans ability, the human society's collective ability to make more choices, right? Sometimes technology gives us individually more choices, but it always gives us socially more choices. It always allows society to do things it could never do before and organize itself in new ways that it didn't before. Technology doesn't happen without society making the choices for technology. Yeah. happen. I think you agree. I think that I am techno optimist because I believe society will generally choose to use the technologies in beneficial ways. I think that that you, it is to be a techno optimist in the narrow sense of, I think, you know, engineers will invent cool new stuff this week. Well, yes, I, I am that too. But, you know, I think that there's a broader sense of techno optimism in which I believe that human society will take this and use this for the good of humanity overall in general. And so I think that, um, I do believe we will build a lot of solar power. Yeah. You know, when we get down to the nitty gritty of it, when we look at what, which new technologies society, like, like society could, could or might easily block it's solar nimbyism, right? It's, mm -hmm. will we get cheaper primary energy via solar because people won't allow solar to be built on land? That's yeah. it. Like, I don't think there's, I don't think there's, um, I don't think we're going to see, for example, mining NIMBYism in Chile or wherever such that we can't mine lithium or, or the new lithium deposits we've gotten. I think we will mine that. We have mining NIMBYism in the U.S., though. We have some, but like, we do like, a hell like of a lot of mining. The Pass lithium mine was going to be like the biggest lithium mine in the world. was suited on the grounds by like the, the sort of like three tribes that were nearby. We're like, this is like our sacred land and you can't mine here. And, um, you know, that, that, that does happen, right? We, we don't. We don't do uh, a lot of mineral mining in the U.S. We don't do a lot of mineral processing in the U.S. because some of those processes are environmentally kind of nasty, and we so we so we export and we're not going to but... environmental damage to like other countries. Yeah, we're going to do a lot of that in Indonesia, Mexico, <laughs> but that's fine. They need they need you know if you're like oh well actually the economic activity is more important than the environmental externality. Get over it, you stupid tree huggers. Well, then it's like guess who needs money? Indonesians. They're poor. And so, yeah. so fine, you know, like, like if, if that's your, your idea, then all you have to do is, is, you know, ignore the few, like, you know, green protesters will be like, we're doing all this mineral processing in Indonesia. They don't even know what mineral processing is. Anyway, 
the, the point is that that, that stuff's going to be fine. The problem with that is it was concentrated in China. So it has China risk. Yeah. And then in the future, it will not be because there's a lot of poor countries who can do this and they can make a lot of money doing it. This, we do not need mineral processing. We, the only reason we need mineral processing in America is for national security in case of like, uh, but by the yeah, time we get to that point, by the time we get to like, you know, oh, we need an America instead of Mexico, like we're fucked. Like, we're losing that war badly by that point. And so, so um, yeah, so I think that mineral processing is fine. Mining is going to be fine. We actually, we mine a lot in America. I'm sorry. We, we, you know, America has like. We mine a lot of oil and gas. We mine a lot of oil we and do, gas. We do mine a lot of oil and gas. We don't do a lot of minerals. Excluding oil and gas, it's $137 billion of mining, okay. the gross output of the, the mining industry. Uh, and excluding support services for mining as well. $137 billion. That's a big industry, man. It's like, how much is how much is software? And we can't pump up the prices of mining by like slapping a, a cool new label on, on, a, on, on a, you know, like piece of copper or something. Eli, what would make you less of a government pessimist? And what would be the highest leverage thing we could do to get there? Like, if we could repeal NEPA, right? Like, that would be like, I, I don't think that solves our problems 100%. But that would be like a very big step in the right direction that I think like probably 80% of, uh, of the political spectrum would support if they knew enough about it. Uh, and so it's like a thing that we like, we should probably do. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, like not being able to do that makes me like, it makes me cognizant of like how much just stasis and how much like uh, inertia we like our, our, our legal system has. Um, but like, that's like, to me, like that's like the number one uh, indicator is like, if we can do something seriously, either, either seriously reform or get rid of uh, the national environmental policy act, that would, that would give me like, a lot more uh, hope and excitement uh, and that we like be able to overcome some of these problems. So can we repeal it or, or what needs to happen for that to happen? Um, I don't know. So I, so, so we had like a tiny bit of uh, reform in the last debt ceiling bill. It basically was, it basically did nothing. Um, I think, I think we're just going to, um, we're just going to keep bumping up against it because what we're trying to do is like deploy a ton of new clean energy resources. Like Noah said, right. We're trying to build like a lot of solar, but a lot of other stuff, a lot of, uh, you know, transmission and pipelines for, you know, hydrogen and uh, you know, battery factories that we're subsidizing and so on. And like all of that stuff, we're just going to keep running into uh, like, like if we're trying to actually transition away from fossil fuels, that requires like a lot of building a lot of building where the federal government is involved and NEPA is just going to keep uh, being an obstacle over and over and over again. So I think it's like the issue will not go away until it's, until it's uh, resolved. Uh, I think it's like pretty impossible to, uh, to imagine like a really successful green transition without like some sort of permitting reform. Noah, where, where do you stand on uh, what, what would make you less of a government pessimist? Um, I mean, I, uh, what would make me less of a government pessimist? A big war. Um, <laughs> no, I like, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the um, obviously, you know, NEPA is a big problem. Everybody knows this is kind of an old story. It's not the only problem either. There's a lot of other problems no. that like we almost use NEPA as a mental shorthand for uh, with permitting and with other stuff as well. Um, uh, financing is actually a much bigger problem than anyone realizes. Like financing of, of 
construction turns out to be a much bigger deal than people realize. Um, but, but that's a subject for many other episodes. But I think that um, with these things, you can, um, you can take basically uh, two minds. You can say, okay, well, here's a thing we need to change. Here's an obstacle we need to overcome. And you can say, here's an obstacle we'll never overcome. I'm going to just whine. Do not do, yeah. do not be the same no. guy. Do not be number two. Do not, do not use, you know, like, like, and, and also the idea that like, you're like, well, government can't get anything done until we just repeal government. Um, you know, like, um, then, then we won't get anything done. Just this, this sort of like a ineffectual sad sack libertarianism of like, I give up, you know, like world, the world sucks. Nothing can ever be done. While meanwhile, like SpaceX is out there building like the fucking rocket industry and whole new cities out there in Texas. Yeah. Like, like, the, this sort of the, the pacifist pessimism of like, it's government, government is destroyed. everything. we can't fall into that. Um, we've got to be like, okay, well, we live in a society that people will, you know, there, there will be some restraints on what people are able to do. We've got to work out a social compromise that allows us to get stuff done. Um, that involves things like federalism, go build stuff in Texas that allows that involves things like permitting reform that involves things like finding a, you know, sort of a national reason uh, like, like, you know, competition with China to do things that will unite the parties, uh, to some degree. And that it, there's a lot of things that, you know, um, you know, Yimby's, you could just be a, be a Yimby pessimist and say, well, nobody wants apartment buildings, but like California is passing a bunch of Yimby laws and there's this big national movement and every city is now trying to do Yimby laws. And in fact, we have started building more housing and rents have moderated, um, and so in real terms, not just nominal. Um, and so <clears throat> being this, this, you know, super pessimist, uh, also, you know, you know, that, uh, like AEI's famous curve of like this expensive service industries. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at it over the last decade, then service, except for hospital services, which still have increased by more than wages, uh, everything else, all the other big ticket services, like, you know, childcare and, and whatever education have all gotten more affordable, uh, for the average, you know, wage earner or family, et cetera, over the last decade. Okay, so that's a decade. Like, you know, the the most important curve ever shows stuff beginning decades ago, right? And we haven't yeah. like, but, but still over the last decade, if you draw that curve, you see that most of the big ticket services getting more affordable. So like this, you know, the, the sort of pacifist throw up your hands pessimism that I see sort of starting to creep into, uh, you know, some, some libertarian thought needs to go, you know, yeah. like, Yes, you're going to have no, to I deal totally with agree. some like some dorks out in some community like, you know, in, in, in like SoCal who are like, well, we don't want those buildings out here. And then, like, no, you're going to have to deal with that. And and maybe you don't go to SoCal. Maybe you go to Nevada. Maybe you go to Arizona. Maybe you go to Tennessee, you know, and of course, Texas. And so but then like, yes, we're going to deal with that, but we're going to deal with that. Like there's no point in being a pessimist about it. It doesn't help. I mean, I like I, I to be clear, like, I think we should we need to do it like that's I, I agree with you. Right. Like, I, I don't think we have any other choice. Uh, we we have to, like, overcome these obstacles. I just think uh, like I'm very conscious of the obstacles. And so when I see people being like just purely no optimistic without like thinking about like, OK, well, how are we going to overcome these obstacles? Like, I just want to be like, OK. Great that you're optimistic about the technology, but now let's now let's like uh, let's let's fix things. Passive optimism and passive pessimism are both bad. Let, yeah. We have a hard stop, so let's uh, let's wrap on that. Th thank you, uh, thank you, Eli. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for having me. 
Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 